Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The text this morning is a difficult text, as Pastor Jeremy just alluded to. It's a text that is primarily about judgment, at first at least. It makes me uncomfortable, and I expect it might make some of you uncomfortable this morning. Because, as the Apostle Peter in the New Testament would remind us, judgment begins in the household of God. So in our text today, Israel is the nation, God's chosen people, that will receive that just judgment. Now, if you can stick with me this morning, I promise there's grace that flows in abundance. And as Pastor Jeremy often reminds us, there is more grace and mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. So this morning, as we turn to Hosea's prophecy, the darkness of the night is long, and we must wait for a little while for the brightness of the dawn. Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord came Hosea, the son of Eberi, in the days of Zion, Joseph, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And when the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu, for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God, I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses or horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. A few years ago, when I first moved to Ann Arbor, my family and I were looking for a church. And I happened to come across a billboard on the back of a city bus advertising a fairly new congregation here in the city of Ann Arbor. That church will remain nameless because I'm going to be slightly critical of that billboard. Um, the billboard had a beautiful scene. It looked like a campfire. People were 
almost looking like they're going to break into kumbaya at any moment. And the text of the billboard read this. I took a photo because I was in disbelief, honestly. The text read this. A church devoted to you. If we fail to see the problem with that text this morning, then perhaps we have bought into the world's lie that it's all about you. It's all about me. We live in a culture that actively promotes the view of the world that the serpent in the Garden of Eden promoted. That you'll be like God when you eat of the fruit. It's all about you. It's about self. Be your own God. Be autonomous. Don't submit to any deity. The idolatrous sentiment that is found in that billboard is one that it's not, shouldn't be surprising to us that it's coming from a church. Because as in Israel's day, many of those who claim to be the covenant people of God are in fact those that are in error. Today, there are tremendous words of application from Hosea's text. And I want us to see three big points. The first, God will not tolerate his people's worship of other gods. Second, sin has consequences and judgment will surely come. Judgment may tarry, but it will come. And third, while this seems contradictory to the first two points, God is merciful and remembers his covenant promises to his people. So while this message is a difficult one, it has much to say to us today. The life of the prophet in Israel was a difficult job. The prophet is often thought of as a foreteller of the future, an oracle of judgment, and certainly there is that in Hosea. But the prophet in Israel was more than that. They were covenant representatives of God to the nation and specifically to its leadership. They were a little bit like lawyers reminding the people of their covenant obligations to Almighty God. What is unique about Hosea's prophecy among all of the other prophets of the Old Testament is that not just his words were to be prophetic, but his life, his family, and his children were to even have a voice in his prophecy. In a kind of divine drama that plays out, Hosea plays the part of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Gomer, his wife, plays the part of the nation. The marriage of Hosea to Gomer, the harlot, was a symbol of the relationship between God and Israel. Gomer's actual adultery was a physical representation of Israel's spiritual idolatry. In chapter 1, God calls Hosea to marry an adulterous woman. And in chapter 3, he's called to take her back as she wanders from her marital vows. We see a snapshot in this story of the picture of God's relationship with his people, historically, the nation of Israel, but it has wider ramifications as we'll see. Time and time again, Israel walked away from God and committed spiritual adultery. Time and time again, God took back his wayward bride and forgave her. We must remember that God extended his mercy countless times to his people. In Hosea's prophecy, however, we see that God's mercy had reached an end point. God would no longer hold back his wrath and justice. 
Israel would reap the results of their sin and God would, would withdraw his protection and mercy. Hosea's life and prophetic word pronounced judgment on the covenant, so-called covenant people of God. Let that sink in for a moment. In other words, as the Old Testament reminds us, that all of those who were of Israel were not of true Israel. Not all are true Israel that claim the name Israel. And I'm afraid today we may have the same problem in the church. There were outwardly religious, circumcised people who were in covenant with the God of Israel by sign, and these were probably good religious people. In our modern context, they were church-going, maybe dusted off their Bibles from time to time, they'd been baptized, and perhaps even tasted of the heavenly gift, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us. From looking at later passages in the book of Hosea, we know that the people of Israel were guilty of idolatry and the worship of the god Baal. They were guilty of, of breaking at least the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Israel had forgotten the God who had saved them by his mighty hand. The God who had carried them out of slavery to the Egyptians on what Moses described as wings of eagles. They had forgotten that this was the God who had taken them into a land victoriously, a land flowing with milk and honey. They had forgotten the covenants, the promises, and the obligations to the covenant with God. They had given into syncretism, the worship of God, of the true God, but they added these other deities like Baal to the mix. They had forgotten that their God was a loving and merciful God to be sure, but also a jealous God who is a consuming fire. In our day, many have a problem with the idea of a jealous God. I fear, however, that we don't recognize the God to whom the Bible refers sometimes. The God of Israel is the creator of heaven and earth who breathed into the dust of the earth to make humanity. This is a God who is perfectly holy and just, who is zealous for his name. And the Bible says he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. As the 11th century saint Anselm attempted to capture in words to describe God, he said God was that which nothing greater can be conceived. This God, our God, is the only being in the universe that deserves our worship and praise. And this God came to the prophetic word through the prophetic word of Hosea and said, you will not worship other impotent false gods. I demand fidelity. As we look at the words of verse 2, we see that the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Their spiritual adultery may have seemed small in their eyes. They still worshiped God. They gave God his service, but our God will not tolerate spiritual adultery. He is perfect and holy and will not share his glory with another according to the scriptures. 
how we are so prone to underestimate the seriousness of sin, particularly the seriousness of idolatry. We fail sometimes to recognize who God is. We have nice stories in the New Testament and we feel good, but the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He saw our predicament and came and did something about it. He is merciful and filled with grace. But this God is also the one God of the universe deserving our worship and praise. Idolatry is a big deal this morning because our God is a big deal. And idolatry is described by the prophet Hosea as great whoredom. Are we so different today? Martin Luther's larger catechism helps maybe with this discussion. Luther wrote, whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. Who or what is our God this morning? Is it the maker of heaven and earth who came and took on flesh in the incarnation, who died and gave himself for you and for me, who is currently interceding at the right hand of God for us? Is this our God? Are we here for our Sunday duty? Who is our God when we leave this building? For many of us, our idol may have four walls, windows, a roof, and a mortgage. For some of us, our God may be something else. It may be something rooted in the heart, as Luther suggests. As a professor at the University of Michigan, I have a number of students that are searching for meaning in their life. And many of them are searching through their work and their studies. They have this view that if they attain that perfect job, that everything's gonna be great. That you land that perfect job after you get your perfect education and the American dream is before you. That is a bankrupt dream and I know because I've personally fallen for it myself. There is a lot more to life than career and enslavement to a job. If we shut off social media and the various entertainment devices that we have, and even spend a few moments reflecting in our heart and ask the question, who is our God this morning? What would we say? If we were honest, would we be able to answer the first question of the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith? Is our God, our purpose in life, our chief purpose, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Or is our chief purpose somehow today to glorify self? It's not an easy question to ask. The late great reformed theologian J.I. Packer asked the question this way in his book, Your Father Loves You. Packer said this, what other gods could we have besides the Lord? Plenty. For Israel, there were the Canaanite Baals, those jolly nature gods whose worship was a rampage of gluttony, drunkenness, and ritual prostitution. For us, there are still the great gods of sex, shekels, and stomach, an unholy trinity constituting one god, self. And he also goes on to say that there are other enslaving trios, pleasure, possessions, and position, whose worship is described in the Bible as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
Football, the, fer the firm, and family are also gods for some. Indeed, as Packer says, the list of our other gods is endless. For anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god. And the claimants for this prerogative are legion. In the matter of life's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed monster. We need to wake up this morning to the reality that the God of the universe is not to be toyed with. Sin has consequences, even in the life of the covenant people of God. We may not face all of those consequences in this life. Some of them may be revealed on our death at the judgment. But the people Hosea was speaking to in this text are the covenant people of God. God's judgment was announced by Hosea to Israel, but it has tremendous relevance for us. We begin the descent into darkness of judgment as we see the consequences of Israel's idolatry. In chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, we see that Gomer had three children and that each child was named by God to express a specific judgment against Israel. While the judgment was focused on the northern kingdom, it had application and implication for Judah in the south as well. Remember, this is a period of the divided kingdom in Israel, Judah in the south, and the ten northern tribes that are called Israel. We read that the firstborn child of Hosea and Gomer in verse 4, we read it this. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. To fully understand this prophetic word, we need to understand and consider the story of Jehu for a moment. Jehu was a northern king of Israel, and in fact is one of the few that gets modest commendation from God in the Bible. He wasn't as bad as his predecessors and those that came after him. The gospel, or excuse me, the people of Israel knew Jehu because his family was still on the throne in Israel. His house was still in charge, so to speak. The stories of Jehu's warrior conquests would have been fresh in people's minds as they were less than 100 years old. We read about them in 2 Kings, verses, uh, excuse me, chapters 9 through 10, and there we get a picture of Jehu's life. We get a good summary statement of what Jehu did if we look at 2 Kings 10:11. It's there we read that, so Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all the great men and his close friends and his priests until he left him none remaining. Why did the house of Ahab and the 70 sons of Ahab deserve to be killed? What was their sin? idolatry, the worship of the god Baal. In an ironic twist, Hosea's prophecy is that the house of Jehu will be brought down and destroyed because of the sin of the worship of Baal. If Jehu was God's instrument of judgment in bringing about the, the removal of the god Baal from the people's worship, what went wrong? Why in Hosea's day, some hundred years later, were things as bad as they were? We read again in 2 Kings 10.30. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. 
he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. The sin of Jeroboam was the sin of idolatry. Jehu and his house did not only tolerate idolatry, they promoted it. The worship of foreign gods in Israel was not something Yahweh, the God of Israel, would tolerate. Jehu's house and dynasty would be coming to a tragic end very soon. Notice also in verse 5 that we see that God would break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Again, this name. This valley would be where the armies of Israel would be defeated in 722 B.C. as they would fall to the Assyrians. God's judgment, possibly even within the lifetime of Hosea himself, would be fulfilled. And the blood would flow in the valley of Jezreel. The northern kingdom was scattered, as the name Jezreel actually means in Hebrew, scattered. Its time in the sun was over. Darkness would descend. Only Judah would remain for that time until eventually their sins would find them out and they would be led into exile by the Babylonians. God takes idolatry and sin seriously, just as seriously today as he did in the time of Hosea. Let's look at the next child. The second child was called No Mercy. The great irony here is that actually this child has a little bit of mercy to show us, thankfully. I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord. Once again, the judgment of God was focused on the northern kingdom. There are some rays of grace and mercy that come through to Judah, but Israel's time in the sun was done. Judah would not suffer the same defeat, the same destructive providence as the northern kingdom. They would survive only by God's grace and mercy. They would survive by his unmerited favor to them. They were not any more worthy than the northern kingdom. Their lists of sins are just as long as the north. But God chose to be merciful to them, and they became trophies of grace and mercy. Let's progress to the third child. The third child born to Gomer would likely have been the most shocking to Israel. In verse 6, we see that the son was to be named, not my people. God goes on to say in covenant annulling language, you are not my people and I am not your God. We have an excellent clear translation of this today in English. But an Israelite who spoke Hebrew would have been shocked by the statement. Because if we read it and translate it literally, it says, you are not my people. And then we get the verb hayah, I am, at the end of the sentence. You are not my people, and I am not I am. You. I am is the covenant name that God revealed in the burning bush to Moses. Before Moses was sent into Egypt to rescue the people of God and to bring them out of bondage, he reveals his covenant name, I am that I am. God is now saying to the north, I am not, I am to you. This is where we have to ask, hold on. Doesn't God keep his covenant? Yes, God remembers and keeps his covenant. So what's going on here? 
we have to remember that the Mosaic Covenant had rights and responsibilities. We get an if-then ethical statement in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, where if Israel does A, God will do B. In other words, this is what we read. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples of the earth. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There was a responsibility that Israel remain in covenant with God. Israel had proven time and time again that the covenant was null and void from their side. God had over and over again brought them back, but his mercy to the northern kingdom was at an end, at least for the present. The descent into darkness was almost total at this point. The prophecies of Hosea were not written to us, but they were written for us. I cannot stop here just by considering the nation of Israel and the ancient history that it contains. Israel was the old covenant people of God, and we have a continuity with them in the church today. We are an inheritor of the rich promises, the covenants, the blessings of God through the nation of Israel. As one theologian has put it, the church is Israel grown up. The creator redeeming God of the Old Testament is still on the throne and is also the God of the New Testament. We cannot ignore the Old Testament and we must apply this text to our current context. As I implied earlier with the questions, where is your heart today? Where is my heart? What is the desire of my life? Is it presently to serve Christ? Is it to glorify him and to enjoy him? Do I desire a purity of life because it is pleasing to him? Is he my joy and treasure this morning? Is he your joy and your treasure? Or are we just checking boxes this morning? Playing Christian well enough that maybe even we can fool God. If this is your story, this is my story, we have to ask where our commitment is and what it should be. Israel, I'm sure, thought things were fine. Shortly after the prophet Hosea, Jeremiah tells of a time when the people would not hear his words because there were other prophets that were saying, peace, peace. But Jeremiah said, there is no peace. Hosea says in his text to Israel, and perhaps to us, if we are guilty of idolatry this morning, there cannot be peace. Out of mercy, as I mentioned before, God's judgment may tarry, but it will come. What does his judgment look like? There are many passages which we could turn to. Hosea 13, verses 7 and 8, give us a picture. God is pictured as a lion, as a leopard, and a mother bear. We read there. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, and a wild beast would rip them open. This was the judgment that was about to befall 
befall the northern tribes of Israel. This is how seriously God takes sin. But let us remember that this holy and just God is the same God that looked upon us with pity and love. It is the same God who provides a way of redemption for us, knowing that we could not pay for our sin. In the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, Aslan the lion is an allegorical representation of God in the story. Lewis's character Lucy asks about Aslan and says, is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Mr. Tumnus also says he's wild, you know. Not a tame lion. So our God this morning, Israel's God, is not safe or tame, but he is good. He is loving and filled with grace, and that is to where Hosea turns next. In the most dramatic 180 we could imagine, our God who reveals himself as a devouring lion shows himself to be a lamb. When we arrive at verse 10, the tone changes. Dawn is starting to break. We hear the radiant beauty of the words of the covenant of grace ringing in our ears. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Along with Hosea's original audience, we should be drawn to this text. This is the covenant language God used with Abraham. God remembered his everlasting covenant of grace to his people. Despite his people's unfaithfulness, God would remain faithful. Grace and mercy freely flow. Many of the judgments in the passages just a few verses above are reversed. Not my people shall be called children of the living God. The future remnant of the people of Judah and Israel would be gathered together and united under one king. And they shall go up from the land, which many commentators note is a return from exile and a kind of resurrection. Jezreel, a name which had signified blood and judgment, now represents a great and glorious restoration, restoring the scattered children of Israel. God's judgment gives way to grace and mercy. The darkness gives way to the dawn. The good news gets only better as we move into the New Testament. We see the dawn breaking in the Old Testament, but the sun's effulgent rays begin to emerge in the New Testament. The apostles Peter and Paul tell us in the prophecy, using Hosea's language, that the church will be made up of Jew and Gentile and would continue to fulfill God's great purpose. In 1 Peter 2.10, we read, Once you were not my people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The Gentiles and all nations would be gathered together in the church. Paul again applies the prophecy of Hosea to include Gentiles in Romans 9.25. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there you will be called sons of the living God. 
there is one this morning that speaks a better word to us than the prophet Hosea. The covenant of grace was given to Abraham, but its ultimate fulfillment was not in the reiteration of promises to Israel, a return from exile. We see the covenant reach its climax in the New Testament. We see a word to all nations, and that word was a person. He was called the light of the world. He left the heavenly realm and came to earth. As we say in the creed, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He looked at his wayward, sinful people and said, I love you. Though your spiritual adultery is great, I will give you a new name my name. You who were not my people shall be my people. He was the one who looked at the horror of the cross with joy, according to the writer of Hebrews. Why? Because it would bring many sons and daughters to glory. This one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is also the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, the bright and morning star came while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul. For those of you this morning who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ, Jesus offers his grace and mercy to you. Today is the day of salvation. None of us can keep God's law perfectly, for we are all sinners and idolaters this morning, deserving the same judgment as Israel. But God, who is rich in mercy, offered to restore communion and fellowship with him through his son. You see, the greatest judgment that ever befell anyone or any nation on the earth was not to Israel. It was to Jesus Christ on the cross where he drank the cup of wrath, the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it to the bottom for all of those who would bow the knee to him. The Apostle John tells us that we love Christ because he first loved us. That even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ made us alive together with him. By grace are you saved through faith. God knew that we were incapable of keeping the law, so in Christ... He kept it on our behalf. We could never pay for the penalty of sin, but as the hymn writer says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart, but turn to the living God. Turn to Christ alone in trust and in faith. You will not be disappointed, for he is a good Savior. Christian, those promises are still for you this morning as well. If you and I feel the burden of sin, if we feel that our heart is drawn to another this morning, we can turn in repentance and faith. Christian, keep looking outside of yourself for a righteousness that is not your own. Keep trusting him. He will remember his covenant promises because his covenant promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. 
Christ longs for us to repent. That's also part of the story of Hosea and Gomer this morning. That time and time again, God welcomes back his wayward people. The words of Martin Luther may be of some help for us here this morning. When Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Church of Wittenberg, the first of those Theses said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We should not presume upon the mercy of God this morning or take it for granted, but we have a Savior who is willing to forgive. As the Apostle John reminds us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We will never be completely free from sin in this life. But we have a Savior who is eager to forgive when we confess our sins. And that's good news. And that's the gospel. May we learn this morning to love and treasure Christ above all else. To desire him, to enjoy him and glorify him forever. May that be our heart's prayer. And when we fail, may we ever seek the loving arms of our Savior who calls his wayward children back. Even this very day, may our spiritual darkness be turned into radiant light.